This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org. Man, I was so excited about uh, um, doing this study. We're, go- we're going to do a study over the next uh, several weeks called In the Fullness of Time. In the Fullness of Time. We are going to look at the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ. So that when we are done, you are going to be resident experts on the topic of the birth of Christ. We're going to talk about the, the, the technical details when he was born. We're going to talk about the, the dating of, of that birth. We're going to talk about what happened um, in his trip, the flight down to, uh, to Egypt. Why was all of this stuff necessary? What did this have to do with the scenery that we see at Christmas? Okay, so basically, if you look at the nativity scene, we're going to deconstruct it. Okay, we're going to look at the bits and pieces. But tonight, we have to look at why it happened in the first place. Why was there even an arrival of Christ? Now, we could say, yes, it's all about prophecy fulfilled or this. And, you know, we can. Okay, I understand that. But why then? There is a um, two gentlemen that have touched your lives. And I'm going to I'm going to name them. And and when you hear their names, you're going to say, yep, they have left a mark on me. You ready? First name, Edward Pola and George Wiley. They have left their mark on you. Don't you know that? You know, they're not, no, you don't know. I figured you wouldn't know them, but they did something that has left their mark on you. Anybody know Andy Williams singer? He sang a song that's going to be on the radio probably right now on some channel. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Edward Pola and George Wiley wrote that song. Now, in that song and why they wrote it is they wanted to write about the experiences that were in traditional Christmas. Okay? And when you hear the song, you're going to hear them name off a bunch of things that many traditions we still carry on today. But one of which they said, you remember the song? There'll be scary ghost stories and ghost stories at Christmas. How many of you knew that telling ghost stories was an ancient tradition at Christmas. It was, in a, it was in the Victorian age. They would practice telling ghost stories. That practice came into a bigger reality in 1843, 19th century, in a book written by Charles Dickens called A Christmas Carol. That is a ghost story. And that was the type of stories... That was being referred to there, right? And nobody can argue it is an awesome time of the year. I love Christmas. If I had the money, I would do up my house like Clark W. Griswold on that Christmas movie. You know, the man that lights up all his house and, you know, the power plant has to kick in the auxiliary reserve. J.E.A. would be calling me up wanting a piece of that action. I love the lights. I love the carols. I like 
the, the wreaths and poinsettias and the presents and everything there is about Christmas. Because everything that's about Christmas, now I want you to listen to me. Everything that's about Christmas was originally pagan. But the early church, in their wisdom, knew that they could be an influence on a pagan world by taking their practices and using them to teach about Christ. There's an article from Grace to You. How many of you have a John MacArthur study Bible? John MacArthur's Grace to You Ministries, okay? He, they wrote a little article about this, this topic, and I'm going to kind of read it to you. It's very short, but I'm going to read it to you. December 25th is tra- the traditional anniversary of the birth of Christ, but most scholars are unsure about the true date for Christ's birth. That's actually not so true. We have a good estimation of when we think he was born. But any rate, the decision to celebrate Christmas on December 25th was made sometime during the 4th century by church bishops in Rome, and they had a specific reason for doing so. Having turned long ago from worshiping the one true God and creator of all things, many early cultures in the Roman Empire had fallen into sun worship. Recognizing their dependence on the sun's yearly course in the heavens, they held feasts around the winter solstice in December. When is the winter solstice? Do you know what day that is? 21st. What, what's the big thing about that day? Longest night of the year, right? As a part of their festivals, they would build bonfires to give the sun god strength and bring him life again. When it became apparent that the days were growing longer, there would be great rejoicing. The church leaders in Rome decided to celebrate Christ's birth during the winter solstice in an attempt to Christianize these popular pagan celebrations. For the most part, their efforts failed to make the people conform and the heathen festivities continued. Today, we find ourselves left with a bizarre marriage of pagan and Christian elements that characterizes our modern celebration of Christmas. Regardless of the pagan background of so many December traditions and whether or not Jesus was born on 25th, our goal is still to turn the eyes of all men upon the true creator and Christ of Christmas. The light of the world has come. And the Christmas season and celebration presents the church with a wonderful opportunity to preach the good news. That men can be made righteous and have the peace with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That's an excellent little article, but is is very uh, succinct in telling you how did we get all the pagan stuff and how's it, how do we kind of, you know, hijack it as it were. How many of you ever been in a part of a, a, a church, maybe growing up where you did the hanging of the greens? Anybody ever do hanging of the greens? Anybody ever seen that? Come on, nobody's ever seen the hanging of the greens in a church ever. Well, <laughs> we'll hang up some mistletoe there in the back, and we'll we'll have fun with that. Okay, hanging of the greens is a service where um, Christmas tree wreaths, poinsettias, um, the uh, chrismon ornaments on the Christmas tree. Okay. All of that stuff is discussed and, and they take the decorations and attribute it to, to the life and the person and the work of Jesus. 
And uh, typically it's a, an evening service because it's candlelit, you know, kind of thing. And you have different families come up and they'll come and they'll read a passage of scripture and, and talk about, you know, what they are holding, whether it's a wreath or whatever. And then there's a place marked along the, 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 the sanctuary and then they'll go and hang it. I always thought they were really cool. And uh, I, I might have to bring a hanging in a green service to this church next year. It's cool. It's really cool. And then, and then here's the coolest part. When you're done, the church is decorated for Christmas. Okay? So it's like killing two birds with one stone. Well, why the timing? I'm going to give you three things to consider about the timing. And we see it here in Galatians 4. Look here in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under or of the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay. Three things here I want you to see. You can take notes if you've got a piece of paper there. I didn't do a handout for you. Maybe my apologies, but um, let me give you three things to think about this text in the fullness of time. First of all, God is pointing out a chronological issue. Okay. Um, in verse four, that word time and my memory escapes me, I don't remember the precise Greek word that's used there, but there is a Greek word that is often translated as time, um, and the word is chronos, chronology. And, and you know what the chronological is, where we get those words from. First thing we see here that Paul is pointing out to the Galatians, and by the way, Paul wrote the book of, Cal- of Galatians to explain to this church the absolute true nature of the gospel. If you are looking for a precise treatise on the meaning of the gospel in the New Testament church, this is the book to study. And so in these couple of verses, he's actually just talking about his arrival. What happened with Christ's birth? Well, first of all, there was a chronological issue. There had to be a certain time that would have been more favorable in the world than others. Now, what are we talking about here? Well, um, First of all, there's there's a word here. Um, uh, in Ephesians chapter one and verse ten. It's used. Um, Philippians chapter two, verse six. I believe it's used. A Greek word that that really means it was appointed beforehand. In other words, God knew all along that there was going to be a proper and right time for Christ to come. Certain things had to take place. All the things in the Old Testament had to have to come forth. Prophecies fulfilled. God knew the same way God knows you and I. That's why nothing takes him by surprise. I would roll up um, the scene of a, a dwelling fire or a business that was on fire when I was a chaplain with the city of Rocky Mount. And, and one of the first things, this was like one of my, I said it every time. I said, listen, I know, and I would pray for them if they would let me. Most time they would. This may have caught you off guard, but it didn't catch God off guard. 
It didn't catch him by surprise. He knew this was coming. And if he knew that this was coming, he's going to equip you and help you through this time. You've got to rely on his strength. So there is a chronological issue going on here. When the fullness of time, listen, notice the past tense had come. Something had to have arrived. A lot of Christian apologists, theologians, whatever word you want to use, talk about this time as Pax Romana. Now, that's a word you don't need to, you know, it's not going to be on a test or anything. Pax Romana. What it means is peace of Rome. Not not peace like a, a piece of paper, but peace as in there was relative calm because of the Roman Empire. Because they pretty much defeated everybody they came across. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, that was a big deal. Roman Empire is a big deal. But think about what the Roman Empire brought. Have you ever heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? I mean, they had a network of communication and of travel that was in place. So guess what that would help with? Gospel proclamation. What else was was going on there? You had a common language. What was it? Greek. Koine Greek. Everybody spoke it. That's why you can go to many places in the world. You know what a common language can be? English. English. In so many metropolitan areas around the world, no matter what country, you will find some folks there who speak English. It it was just what was there. And, And I believe... This is my personal belief that God waited. He knew that these times were going to come. He knew that by his sovereign plan, this would be the time. You've got a dominant, uh, a, a, a dominant uh, a political structure in, in Rome. Okay. You had a network that, that disseminating information is a lot quicker. And you had a more unified language as a result. The fullness of time had come. By the way, when you read Matthew 24, verse 14, okay, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached unto all the world, okay, as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. That's in the Olivet Discourse. The word world, it's interesting, it's not talking about the globe earth. In the New Testament, one of the one of the ways that they defined the world was the Roman Empire, meaning the known world. Because what they believed at that time, if Rome didn't own it, then it must not exist. Because everything they knew about the world, it was touched by Rome. It was it was amazing. Okay, so you have a, a chronological. Uh, thing going on here. All right. The second thing we have going on here is something that's missiological. Missiological. Okay. Now, I have told you about a book called The Mission of God by Christopher N.T. Wright. I'll write his name down because that's It's a seminary book, okay? But um, you don't have to have a, a, a master's degree to be able to, to read and understand and follow him. 
In that book, the mission of God, what he said, he starts in Genesis and he works through the entire scriptures and he shows us how the scriptures are unified in teaching us that God is a sending God. For God sent forth his son, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. So our God is a missionary God. That's why God's people, you and I, that's why it's really in our spiritual DNA, we're going people. We need to be doing something. Maybe that's why in the church in Ephesus, Paul had to calm them down and says, hey, listen, guys, I know y'all busy. You remember in Revelation chapter two, the church in Ephesus, I know y'all are busy, but you left Jesus behind, right? You, you left your first love. I know y'all are super busy and see for us, we can get super busy. That's why a decision that we made uh, with our leadership and getting these ministry teams was such a crucial thing because we can get so busy every now and again, a church needs to analyze all of our structures because sometimes we'll build structures unnecessarily and we'll start focusing on the structures and we forget about why we were doing them in the first place. You boil everything down to these ministry teams. What is the focus? People. Is all about the people. It is all about our congregation and everybody else in our communities that has, number one, yet to have heard the gospel to make a decision, or maybe they're struggling in some sort of way, or they've been burned by church in the past, and we can reach them. And, it, and listen, it is wise for a church to look at all of our structures every so often to make sure that we are effective. Because our God, I promise you, there was... A, there's an old gospel song. I don't know who sang it or who it's attributed to, but when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Y'all, you ever heard that song? Man, it's beautiful. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. I'm telling you, from Genesis all the way till now, the only thing that's been on God's mind is us. He has always been a sending God. He has always been concerned about you and I. And it is reflected here. God sent forth his son. He sent his son. Notice that there were two qualifiers. Born of a woman. Born of the law. They were put there on purpose. Let me explain to you why very quickly. How many of you have ever heard of the word, the, 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 the term kinsman redeemer? Kinsman redeemer. The book of Ruth is the Old Testament explanation of the kinsman redeemer. Let me break it down for you really super quick. You remember there was Ruth, Naomi. Remember those two gals? They were both married. But then their husbands both died. They went back to their homeland. And you remember, Naomi tried to say, Ruth, you don't have to go with me. Ruth said, no, no, no. Where do you go? I go. Your people, my people, your God, my God. Ruth goes. Naomi says, we got to find this gal, a man. But legally, it can't just be any man. It has to be a right man. It has to be a relative of me, Naomi. And just so happened, Naomi had a wealthy heir or relative, excuse me, and named Boaz. He was a pretty good old farmer, too. Old Ruth went to go work in those fields. And through a series of, of God-ordained events, Ruth, Boaz, 
met, love bug bit Boaz, and he married her. He was a kinsman redeemer. He was the redeemer because financially, in that circumstance, he was able to marry Ruth. But he was a kinsman because the Old Testament law required that there had to be a family structure to this. And he was related to Naomi. Remember, traditionally, let's say that, uh, let's say that um, my wife died. If I had a brother, he was obligated to marry her. I, I mean, if I died, what did I say? If she, did I say she died? That would, that would probably be illegal. For a few more years, then the Supreme Court would overturn it. But at any rate, um, we'll cut that out of the recording, I guess. But uh, yeah, if I died, my brother was obligated. So that was the kinsman redeemer. Let me just move on. Okay, Jesus, right here, born of a woman, kinsman, born under the law, redeemer. And I'm going to explain why this is so important in the last point. Right here. You ready? You have the missiological, number three. Now you have the theological reason. Theological. Verse five, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Two aspects of Jesus are are being taught here. Number one, Christology. As the person, the, the person of Jesus. Who was he? Was, you know, was he truly born of a virgin? And what did that mean? Was Jesus himself already existent? Yes, he was. Remember, he's the second person of the Godhead. He is co-eternal co-equal with the Father. He has always existed. He was only born of a woman and put on a robe of flesh that way. He had to do it because he had to be born of a woman. He had to be that to, to be our kinsman. And that was only what was required. By the way, he had to be born of a virgin. That is, remember, he, he uh, uh, Mary was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Okay. That way he kept his kingly authority because had he been born of Joseph and Mary, he would have only been the son of Joseph, not the son of God. Christology is a big deal. You give up Jesus, any aspect of why he came and you've just given up your savior. All right, that's Christology. The second one is, and this is a good one. It's a $5 word, soteriology. I'm going to spell this one for you because you're probably wondering what that word looks like. Okay, soteriology. All that means is the work of Jesus. What did he do on the cross? His death, burial, and resurrection. One is the person, Christology. 
Soteriology, his work. All right? So, you can kind of break it down this way. This would be easy to, to kind of understand them this way. You had the Christ, the person, and that had to be intact. But you also had to keep intact his work. What did he actually do? Look at the text here. What was his work? Look at number verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law, that we might become adoption as sons. Now, that terminology is also very important, adoption as sons. We call Jesus the what of God? Son of God. But we see right here that we might receive adoption as sons. How can that be? What the scriptures are teaching us right here is that by this person and the work of Jesus, we can move from just being a child. And I know we talk about a child of the king, child of God, whatever. Just just kind of put that off to the side. We move from just being a child, an orphaned child, to be an adopted heir of God. We are now adoptive sons and daughters of God. You read a lot about that in the theology of Paul in the book of Romans, okay? Among other places. So, let me list you some criterion about the, a, a child, a child. A typical child, they can't inherit anything. Think about a child in, in, in an orphanage somewhere. They're lost. They, they just, they're just a child. No pedigree, but they are stained with the curse of sin. They have a guardian, but they don't have a daddy. A son, on the other hand, is an heir. They do have a father. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our where? hearts. Now, when we talk about come and ask Jesus into your heart, that's where that terminology is coming from. OK, it wasn't just out of thin air there, you know, so there it is. Crying what? Abba, Father. We have moved from becoming just a child and to borrow an ancient term, the bastard child. No chance, no pedigree, no nothing. But because of the person and the work of Christ in the fullness of time in which God sent him, we can now be, because he was born, what, under the law, Right? But also born of a woman. Now we can become, all of us can be sons and daughters of God. Adoptive. Meaning we will receive the inheritance. We are now heirs to the kingdom. That's why Jesus said, 
I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. <laughs> you know, and I'm going to go prepare a really nice place for you. And when I've prepared, I'm going to come again. It's just, it's just so easy to see in, in Pauline theology. This is, this is what blows me away, um, even to this day. And I've been, you know, studying Pauline theology on some level since 1995. And it blows me away how moved by God, he knew what to write, inspired of God, using God's terminology, and brings together every bit of the scriptures. That's why it was not hard for Jesus on the Emmaus Road to use nothing but the Old Testament. Remember, using Moses, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained everything concerning who? Himself. To those two old boys on the Emmaus Road. I had this thought come to my mind, and I had to I had to type it out because there was no way I could have recited it for you. But I want you to listen to this. Christ was the person. Now remember these these two theological. Let me write the other one, Christological. Let me write that up here real quick because I'm going to point to them here. Okay, I'll draw a line between them right there. Christological soteriology. Or you could, you, uh, there's another soteriological, okay? That's the work. The first is the person. Christ was the person who did the work in order that we could become the people he wanted us to be. We originally were the persons who tried to work to become the people that we never could have been. Let me say that again. Christ was the person who did the work in order that we could become the people he wanted us to be. We are the persons who tried to work to become people that we never could have been. That's what the Old Testament was all about. Well, they tried and tried to do the work. And they failed. They failed. So in the fullness of time, when we picture now this scene in Bethlehem. And imagine more people than you can count because it's census taking time. Everybody returned to their land. Okay. Remember Joseph? Do you know why Joseph went to Bethlehem? He was of the house and lineage of who? David. Remember the kinsman redeemer and Ruth? Remember Ruth? Ruth and her hubby, Boaz, they had a child. His name was Obed. You know who Obed was, don't you? Grandfather of David. Kinsman Redeemer had everything to do with Joseph being of the house and lineage of David going back to Bethlehem. I'm telling you, everything is drawn together here. Okay? Fullness of time. All right? And so you imagine all of these thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people here in Bethlehem. I don't know the number. And then in this stable, carved out, obscure. And you have that imagery of that nativity. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. In the fullness of time, all of that had to take place. Exactly how it took place. Next week... 
we're going to start breaking it down. Not next week, because excuse me, because uh, we don't have uh, Thanksgiving week. First Wednesday in December, we're going to come back. We're going to break down the timing of that. Why was there a census, and and what timing, and who were the leaders, who were the who was the Herod, and what was going on there? We'll start breaking that apart in our next time together. Okay. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org.